Worship team, thank y'all so much for leading us so well this morning in song. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Haggai. I tell you that now so you can have a little bit extra time to find it. Um, if you're a visitor, we're very glad you're here. We count it a privilege to, to worship with you and to get to uh, recount and consider and, and go to God's word and see all that he has done and is doing. And so um, just a reminder, like Brad said, um, that little kiosk right there is a place for you to get information if, if you would like it. And uh, this is a sweet time of year for the church, not because we have more to worship about and more to be thankful for, but because it's just a time of year where we're more attentive to the many blessings that we have. And so this morning we're going to be talking about some of those blessings, but first we're going to pray uh, for a local church and pray for some, a local city official, and then we'll dive into our text. So y'all pray with me this morning. Lord, we come to you this morning humbly and just... Um, Lord, how sweet it is to sing such truth um, that a Savior was born and changed everything. Lord, help us not to get lost in the, in the Christmassy lingo of the season and statements about joy that can be minimized. Lord, help us to rightly see just the beauty and the depth of what happened at that first advent. and Help that to cause in us a, a sweet worshipful, obedient anticipation of what's to come. Lord, we are among the most blessed people to ever walk planet Earth. Um, you are here with us now. It says where we gather and where we do this and where we sing praises, you in fact are present with us. You hear our prayers, you hear those praises, and it pleases you. God, our aim is to please you this morning. And the fact that you made that possible in Christ is amazing. Lord, this morning we want to pray uh, for uh, Highland Terrace and Pastor Chet Haney and his wife Terry, and pray that you would be blessing their time this morning. Um, as they as a church are undoubtedly doing things similar to what we're doing and talking about the Advent and the first coming of Christ and anticipating the second coming of Christ as they talk about how blessed we are to be redeemed people, I pray that, um, that Pastor Haney is, is thoroughly enjoying you, that as he works to prepare sermons and as he meets with people throughout the course of each week, that he would be enjoying you, that he would be putting your glory on display in everything that he does. And I pray that his relationship with his wife, that their marriage is sweet, centered on Christ, and that they are um, living together in an understanding way so their prayers aren't ever hindered. Lord, I pray that you would bless Highland Terrace I'm so thankful to uh, be partners with them in this gospel work. Lord, we also pray as you tell us in your word uh, for a city official, we pray for our, our mayor, David Dryling, and just pray that um, you would bless him and encourage him in your truth and that he would lead the rest of city council um, in such a way as to be a blessing to the people of this community. Lord, we thank you for this community. Thank you for placing each of us here. We're not here by happenstance, Lord. We're here because this is where you want us. And so we take that seriously, and I pray that this morning, as we consider exactly what we're supposed to do while we're here, um, that you would make such things clear to us and help us to enjoy our Savior in the process. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're in the book of Haggai, and this is our third Advent sermon. Advent has always been about anticipation. Um, that's usually, if you hear the word Advent, that's one of the first words that you kind of pop, might pop into your head is, is anticipation. For those who anticipated the first coming of Christ, and for us who anticipate the return of Christ, our anticipation has always been meant by God to consist of more than just waiting. We're not just waiting around, hoping, come Lord Jesus, come, without doing work. Brad talked about the work last week, our small W work that fits into his big W work, and we're going to continue to talk about it in regards to the temple this week. But it's always been the case that our anticipation involves more than just waiting. So look with me at Haggai chapter 2 verses 3 through 9. Haggai chapter 2 verses 3 through 9. It says this, "Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes?" 
Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It would appear the Lord of hosts, repeated and repeated again, has something to say to his people during this time. And so in order to understand what God is saying to Israel, we need some background information. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the minor prophets for probably the better part of this last year. And so if you've been here, you're more familiar. But um, until I taught through the minor prophets, I was not remotely familiar with the minor prophets and what was going on there. So I want you all to go with me down the road here, a very brief little, little detour to help us gain some insight and some understanding because the context of the words that God just spoke to his people here are very, very important, but it's not complex at all. So I don't want to overcomplicate it, but y'all listen to a few details and really try to import your senses. What does this look like? What would it be like to live during this time? And what is God saying to his people? How might they be receiving this? The time during the time, this time where Haggai prophesied is 606, or just a few years before, in 606 BC, the Babylonian invasion of Israel occurred. And the exile began. Now, if some of y'all just checked out because I said history stuff, and I said a date, and I said a place, don't check out. You, you need to know this, and it, it's not complicated, but you got to know this. In 606, the Babylonian invasion began, and the exile began. A second invasion occurred in 597 BC, and the city was besieged again in 587. So we've got about 20 years here that was really rough for the people of Israel. And in 586... Jerusalem fell and was burned to the ground. The temple was destroyed. And the Israelites were taken into Babylonian exile. A lot of times when we read about um, Daniel or, or Ezekiel, this was during that time where they were taken into this Babylonian exile. They remained in exile for almost 50 years. 50 years. So imagine what that would be like if you were part of that. The temple, this thing that, that, that has been central to the, to the dwelling place of God, is destroyed, and you are taken into captivity, imprisonment, exile for half of a century, 50 years. But after 50 years, Cyrus allowed them to return to Jerusalem, and he even promised to give them some goods to rebuild. So he said, guys, I'm going to let y'all not only return to Jerusalem, but I'm going to give you some goods. I'm going to fund some of the rebuilding of your temple. I'm going to give you the freedom to do that. So a bunch of them, about 50,000 of them, made the 900-mile journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem to be a people in their place with their temple again. In 522, Darius came to the throne. It was during this time that Haggai prophesied. And the book of Haggai is two chapters. It's made up of four little sermons that say much of the same thing in four little different ways at slightly different times. So that's the setting. It's not real complicated, but we have to understand this morning, the setting is that God's people, Israel, have been redeemed, they've been restored, they've been given resources, and they're back in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And at this point in the text we're looking at this morning, they've been back for 16 years so 50 years away in captivity, they come back, 50,000 of them make this 900-mile journey, and they've been back for 16 years, and they're getting back to life as God's people in Jerusalem for a little over a decade and a half. But there is a problem. If we understand the context, we can understand the problem. Look with me at 
uh, chapter 1, verse 4. And this explains the problem that's being addressed in chapter 2. 1, 4 says this. In 3, it says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So these are God's words through Haggai to the people. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? He's saying to them, hey guys, it's been 16 years. Your houses are looking real good. They're all fancy and paneled. That's, I guess that would be like a brick house now, something nice and, and comfortable, and it's been worked on. Maybe they're getting to the point where they're, they're really trying to get their dream home in place because, man, they're back in Jerusalem, and they're happy, and they've got this freedom that they didn't have for 50 years, and they're working really hard on their houses. And God says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? He's talking about his temple that was destroyed before they were taken into the Babylonian exile. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. It's a pretty sobering event, right? When God calls you out in the middle of everything you're doing and says, consider your ways. I want you all to feel that with them this morning. What would it have been like to have be redeemed and be restored and be back and even have some resources and freedom to rebuild the tabernacle, the temple? And, and you realize 16 years in, no one's done anything with the temple. And God's calling us out and saying, consider your ways. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He's saying, your situation stinks. You're working real hard on your situation, and it's not all that good. Like, it's so bad, you're working your tail off, you're earning your wages, you're putting them in your pockets that have holes, they're falling out, you go to find your money, it's not even there. How's it going? Consider your ways. And then he does like so many of us do when we say that to our children. We say, I want you to consider what you've done. And then you recap for them what they've done with specific detail that you want them to pay attention to. That's what God does with his children here. He says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. I want you to see what God's saying to his people. He's saying, man, you guys are working really hard. And when you bring that stuff home, you go to look for it. And you know why it's not there? Because I went, because I'm God. And I blew it away. For you, it would be like saying, you worked really hard and you put all that money in your bank account. And then you went to look at your bank account and Somehow, there's not as much there as you thought would be there. Has anyone ever experienced that? Had that panic moment that usually happens in, oh, the second week of December? Where is it? God's saying, in this situation, I blew it away. And then he says, why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. And look what God says he's done here. Therefore... The heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man, on beast, and on all their labors. God's saying to his people, you went into exile as a result of your sin. You had turned from me, you had abandoned me, you went into exile. Interestingly enough, he's still there. He's still present with them. But he's saying, you did that. You lost Jerusalem. You lost the temple. Now I've redeemed you out of your exile. I've restored you to Jerusalem, yet after over a decade and a half, none of your efforts have gone toward the temple. They had a little effort. They laid the cornerstone. And when they started building early on, the Samaritans didn't like it and opposed them. And you know what they did? They stopped. And they didn't touch it again until that because the Samaritans opposed their work of building the temple. God says, consider your ways. From that point, God shows them how their efforts are lacking in every other area because God is interrupting their plans. Do you know that our God is a God who will do that? Has God ever gotten your attention through your circumstances? 
That's what he's doing with his people here. He's saying, he's getting their attention through their circumstances because he is the God of the circumstances, even though they have not acknowledged that with their lives. God's reminding them, man, you guys are working hard on the harvest. I'm the God of the harvest. You guys could really use some rain, right? I'm the God of rain. You guys would love to see the the earth produce a significant yield, wouldn't you? I'm the God of the significant yield. But no one's acknowledging it. You're working hard. But you've failed to acknowledge it by abandoning the temple. But the people repent. That's why this entire sermon isn't a total downer. God goes to them. He makes this appeal. He makes it clear what's going on. And it says that they repent. In the next few verses, it says, They obeyed the voice of the Lord, and the people feared the Lord. The Lord stirred up their spirit and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. That's what you want to happen, right? You say, consider your ways. They do it, and then they repent and start following God and obeying God. So this is a good thing, and that brings us to our verses in chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. In these verses, God is giving them some encouragement and direction for what needs to happen next. It's sort of like if you said, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm gonna, I repent. I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to follow God. Now what? So many times we fail to get to the now what, right? It's just get them saved. There's work to do once you're saved. There's a big purpose to be fulfilled on this earth. And here, he's going immediately. Good, y'all repented, you're back. Let's go to what needs to be done. So he reveals to them some encouragement. The things in their life that are out of order. And they repent and obey. But now it's time for the work to begin. Sort of like when someone joins this church. It's like, all right, we're glad you're here. It's time to get to work. It's like, oh, you're a Christian now. Sweet. We've got some work to do. No flowery beds of ease. Ben used to use that phrase a lot, flowery beds of ease. It's not that. That's not what we're called to. Now the work begins, particularly for them in this setting. Remember, we're looking at their setting first before we go to ours. For them, it's the work of putting things back into their proper order. It's the work of putting things the way they were supposed to be in the first place according to God's will. And so what we see is three commands. If you're taking notes, you should probably write these three commands down. God gives three commands in chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. And the three commands are this. Be strong, work, and fear not. Be strong, work, and fear not. The three commands lead us to identify the content of the work and the nature of the work. Because all three of those things go together. Because you cannot be strong if you're not doing the work. And if you're not being strong, you're going to be fearful. And if you take the work out of it, you're sitting there trying to be strong and fearless for no apparent reason at all. So they all go together. Be strong, work, and fear not. It's interesting. He's addressing the possibility of weakness and fear here. That's part of your walk. God addresses the the possibility of weakness and fear. It's what he's doing for them here. Here, the possibility of weakness and fear aren't there simply because of the volume of work to be done, but more because of the content and the nature of the work. And you could see them having sort of a, this is daunting. We've got to rebuild the temple, the one Solomon built? Man, that's a a lot of work. And they're fearful and and scared. That's not the main source or possible source of weakness and fear. There's something deeper at play in the hearts of God's people. And this is an important point for us to understand for them in their setting. To lose sight of the importance of the temple is to lose sight of the importance of the presence of God. That was very, very true for them in that setting. To lose sight of the importance of the temple. Remember, God says, my house lies in ruins and you seem to not care. To lose sight of the importance of the temple in that setting is to lose sight of the importance of the presence of God. For those of us who live on this side of the cross, it's a little more difficult to wrap our heads around because things are different for us. So I want you to go with me on a little journey through the Old Testament. You don't have to turn. I just want you all to listen. Think about how it all started, right? We're talking about do we care about the presence of God? Did they care about the dwelling place of God? Is God bringing up something new to them, or is he bringing up something completely ancient to them? And for them, here's here's what they would know. 
In the Old Testament, God had a physical place of dwelling among his people. For Adam and Eve, it was the garden. They walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. For Noah, it was the ark. For the Israelites who went to Egypt during the time of famine, it was the land of Goshen that their very nice little brother set aside for them, the most fertile and fruitful land. And God dwelled with his people in the land of Goshen. And then in the Exodus, it was a tent and tabernacle where God went with them through the desert. And during the reign of Solomon, that tabernacle became a temple, a temple of magnitude and grandeur that had never been seen until that point. What, what I'm getting to is this. The dwelling place of God has always been central to the work of God's people. We see that that's where God dwelled, but consider what God did with Adam and Eve. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden to do what? To try to be just strong and fearful? No, to, to work with that, right? He put him in there to work it and to keep it. Consider Noah working on the ark for over 100 years when he had never seen rain. Consider the work it took to move through the desert, to construct, deconstruct, and reconstruct again and again that tabernacle that was so specific. Consider the detailed work of the artisans for the tabernacle. For those of you who were a part of our time through the Exodus study, the overlaid gold, the acacia poles, carefully overlaid with gold, and a certain number of hoops that the poles went through, and then the curtains, and they had the specific stitching of the specific color, and this person came and did the specific work, gave this sacrifice at this time, they did this on the outside, they did this on the inside, It's always been about work, and the work is always centered on the dwelling place of God. And during the time of Haggai, they lost sight of that. God's design has always been that our resources and our efforts and our time are to be focused first on where He dwells. The title of this morning's sermon is Where God Dwells, because that's what we need to focus on. In Haggai 2, 4 through 5, this is why God says, Work, for I am with you, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. God was not calling his people to something new, but to something they had abandoned and that they never should have abandoned. God's reminding his people of a few very sobering and important realities. Consider that God is saying to these people during the time of Haggai, he's saying this, My desire for a temple was never meant to take a backseat to your desire to be comfortable where I placed you. Why are they in Jerusalem? Because they came out of Babylon. Why were they in Babylon? It's where God put them, in the exile. And how did they get back to Jerusalem? Because God took them and he placed them there. The same way he placed Adam and Eve, where he placed them. The same way he placed Noah, where he placed them during that time. The same way he placed the Israelites in Egypt. And the same way he brought them out and put them where he wanted them. And so what they're hearing here in the book of Haggai is God saying, My desire for the place that I dwell among you was never meant to take a back seat to your desire to be comfortable where I've placed you. We might be able to relate. And then God says, my dwelling place among you is so important that I require you to sacrifice your comforts, even if you've worked really hard for them. Do you think that would have been convicting as an Israelite during the time of Haggai? To hear him say, consider your ways. My dwelling place was never meant to take a backseat to your desire to be comfortable and Because of what I have done, you should be willing to sacrifice your comforts even if you've worked hard for them. I want you all to understand, they're not just being lazy. They're working their tails off. They're working on the harvest. And God understands these things. Like I don't want you all to take it too far this morning and say, so God just doesn't want them to do anything. They can't go to work. They just got to worship, worship, worship. Well, kind of. But God understands that you have to eat. You have to pay your bills. There is no harvest if there is no sowing. Someone has to work the field. Someone has to manage the herd so that there are sacrifices. So they're not being lazy. These people are working their tails off. They're enjoying the freedom that they have, but they're just not enjoying it completely rightly. 
And God's saying, man, I get that you have worked hard for the things that make you comfortable. But you guys need to spend less time on that and more time on the place where I dwell. There's an imbalance that he's calling out among them. So at this point, you might be thinking, well, between Brad's sermon last week about work and your sermon this week about working harder, thanks a lot for the Advent encouragement of Jesus. But here's where it gets really scandalous, and I really hope you all enjoy this reality. God doesn't just give commands, he gives promises. So we're going to look at that for them first. Remember, we haven't talked about us yet this morning. God doesn't just give commands, he gives promises. So he gives these commands, be strong, work, and fear not. But then look at the promises that he gives. He says, I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Do you all see how amazing that promise is? They haven't rebuilt anything yet. And he says, I'm still here, guys, and my spirit remains in your midst. Then he gives the promise, I will fill this house with greater glory than the former. And then he gives the promise, I will give peace. God's reminding them of the promises that they have forgotten. What a merciful and gracious God who would remind people of promises that they have forgotten in the pursuit of their own comforts. Promises that they have forgotten at the expense of his house. Yet here, he gives encouragement through these promises. Here's how this plays out for Israel during the time of Haggai. For the Israelite during the time of Haggai, if your work is not motivated by God's promises, you will fall into fear and weakness. They had already shown that to be true. If your work is not motivated by God's promises, you will fall into fear and weakness. The other thing that was true to them is that if they would do what he just said, if they would, they would heed his call and they would obey his voice, the content of their work would change when it was motivated by God's promises and God's presence and God's peace. So there would be an inward change and there would be an outward change if they listened to God here. When you match the promises of God with the commands of God, sacrifice and risk don't just become an option. They, in fact, become the best option. This was true for them here. When you match up the promises of God with these commands that he just gave, and we see the commands, we see this reality that's unshakable that they lost sight of, and when you match those things up, sacrifice and risk aren't just an option. For them in that moment, sacrifice and risk was the best option. They'd be stupid not to move forward with sacrifice and risk here. Why? Well, let's look at this. He's saying to them, guys, during the time of Haggai, the best thing you can do right now is stop spending so much of your time on your comforts and your desires. That's what he's telling them about their actions. He's saying the best thing you, that you guys could do right now for my kingdom, for your well-being, is stop focusing so much on your comforts. Stop spending so much of your time, your money, your efforts, your thoughts on being comfortable where I've, where I've placed you. Rather... God says to them, make the place of my dwelling central to all of your life. My temple, the place where I dwell among you, make that central to all of your life and watch how I bless and multiply your harvest. Remember what he said before? This isn't a health and wealth thing like, obey Jesus, you'll get rich. It's not that simple. He, he says, provided you suffer with me, I know you're mine. But here there are blessings. I want us to see this because remember what he did to interrupt their, their, their flow of life? He, he, he messed with their circumstances because he could do that as the God of their circumstances. He withheld the dew from heaven. He withheld the fruit from the earth. And he's saying to them, you know what, guys? If you will put this in proper order, the, the best thing you can do right now is take some risk and quit worrying about your comfort. And watch how I open those heavens. And watch how I bring a yield from the earth that you could never do. He reminds us again and again. He's like, you can plant water all you want. You can't make anything grow. I'm the God who does that. 
So how about you don't lose sight of me as the one who actually brings fruit out of that ground? Being attentive to God's presence brings peace. It fuels fearlessness. And it fuels strong work for his temple in this setting where the temple really needs to be rebuilt. Strength and fearlessness are needed because there is a very real and tangible opposition to the presence of God throughout the world. They've seen it firsthand in ways that we have not yet experienced it. Strength and fearlessness are needed because there's a very real and tangible opposition to the presence of God throughout the world. For those who have returned from the Babylonian exile, they've already seen that Babylon wanted to snuff out the presence of God. Why else would they burn the temple? Why else would they take all the people out of the land that was given to them? Shortly after returning, the Samaritans tried to do the same thing. No, we're not okay with you rebuilding that temple. We're not okay with the presence of God. And they tried to stop it. And years later, the temple would again see a setback and be attacked by those who opposed the presence of God. So strength and fearlessness were really needed for them to be able to do the work that God was calling them to do in the rebuilding of the temple. God's not saying, hey, things are dangerous, guys. The Samaritans are right around the corner. Y'all don't have to rebuild the temple. He's saying the temple's too important to neglect. My presence with you is that temple. You need to make that central to your life, even though the Samaritans are over here and the Babylons are still only 900 miles away, the Babylonians. He doesn't give them a free pass because of the danger that is involved in being his kids, being his children, being his offspring. He doesn't give them a pass. He tells them, hey guys, be strong, work, and fear not. And he gives them a bunch of promises to match up with that. Now look at verses 7 through 9. God gives these promises in the face of real opposition to them. And he says this in verses 7 through 9. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. That's a big promise for a bunch of people who are opposed on all sides, called to rebuild this temple that was once one of the most majestic structures to grace the earth by the power of King Solomon, power that came from the hand of God. And God's saying, what this is going to be is going to be filled with greater glory than what it once was. Is anybody interested to know how that might happen? I mean, when the first time I read through that, I was like, uh... These are like exiles, and a bunch of them were old. Like the only ones who remember, remember at the beginning, says, who's left among you that saw this house in its former glory? It's because there would be like some 70, 80, and 90-year-olds in the group who would know what it once looked like, but all the youngsters, anyone 50 and below, had never seen it. They'd only heard about the grandeur of the temple. And somehow God's saying, the glory of this temple that's going to be is bigger than what it was with Solomon. So the question is, how could that be true? I mean, the glory of Solomon, you don't have to turn there. You can if you would like. But in 2 Chronicles, if you're like a Bible drill person who's like, I can get there in two seconds, go for it. 2 Chronicles 2, 1 through 5, Solomon has just prayed to the Lord for wisdom on how to lead God's people. And God's like, man, you could have prayed for longer life. You could have prayed for riches. And you know what? Because you prayed for wisdom on how to lead my people, because you care about my presence among people, because you're the kind of king that will spend to be spent gladly on my people, I'm not just going to give you wisdom on how to lead them. I'm going to give you riches and wisdom that has never been seen in a king before. This is going to be new. God says, um, I will give you the richest possessions and honor, such as none of the kings had were before who had, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So he's saying with Solomon, I'm going to do something with you that's unprecedented and will never be followed up. And what Solomon does is, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And look what he says in chapter two, two one through five. Solomon says, Now Solomon proposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord, and a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned. 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 to oversee them. When you need 3,600 bosses, that's a lot of work. 
And Solomon sent word to Hiram, the king of Tyre. He said, as you dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. And he says, behold, I'm about to build a house. Like, I feel like he really would have emphasized these words and used particular, I'm about to build a house like you've never seen, a house for the name of the Lord my God, and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense, of sweet spices before him, for the regular arrangement of the showbread, and for the burnt offerings morning and evening. On the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God has ordained forever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than, our, than all gods. That is the right attitude in regards to the house of the Lord. What I'm about to do is going to be great. You know why? Because there's no one like our God. And as the leader of God's people, he wanted to lead them properly and make sure they could see clearly within the presence of this temple, which represented the presence of God among his people, I want the nations to know there's no one like our God. So how would it be that a bunch of former exiles would come up with a temple that would be filled with greater glory than this? Because this is huge. Turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. That temple that was rebuilt in Jerusalem was to be the place of a very important event in the coming years. Look at Matthew 21, 9. It says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? This is Advent. This is the coming of Christ. He's not a baby anymore. That was first Advent, but this is what came of that. Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And look what Jesus did. And Jesus entered the temple. Jesus entered the temple. A significant promise of future glory being greater than had ever been before came to fruition and fulfillment in that moment. It says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. In the book of Psalms, it says that he will be filled with zeal for his father's house. And that zeal didn't have to do with grandiosity and and big architecture. The zeal had to do with purity. And no one had a zeal for the house of God the way that Jesus did. And when he entered into that temple, the temple that Jesus entered into was the same one that was built in the time of Haggai. Isn't that a sweet connection? Isn't it cool on this side that we can look back and see these amazing connections? Like, this isn't just a fairy tale. This stuff happened. Those people were really addressed by God. God really said, hey, you consider your ways. We need to rebuild the temple. Quit neglecting my house. They really repented. They really rebuilt something. The people after them really took it seriously. And what ended up happening was that was where Jesus went when he came into Jerusalem. And when he entered it, in that moment, that temple was filled with greater glory than the temple of Solomon because of Christ. God's promise came true that it was indeed filled with more glory than Solomon could have ever imagined. The advent of Christ, when he came to earth, when he began his ministry, that was a game changer. His name was Emmanuel, God with us. The whole point of the temple is that it is the dwelling place of God and Jesus Christ comes in the form of Emmanuel, God with us, because God's people are supposed to care deeply about where God dwells. Turn to John chapter 1. I spent 90% of the sermon not having you turn anywhere, and I'm going to have you turn to a couple different places quickly here toward the end. John chapter 1. That temple was filled 
with greater glory because of the presence of God. And I feel like it would be just poetic and amazing enough to stop there. But Jesus didn't stop there. More happened regarding the temple. And in John 1, verse 14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh, and that word dwelt is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. So we see this temple lingo that had happened for thousands of years being made a little bit different with the presence of Jesus. He tabernacled among us. It's interesting to me that while God was so opposed, the presence of God was so opposed, the temple was destroyed so many times that it was interesting that when Jesus came in the form of a baby and tabernacled among us that there was no room in the inn. Kind of fitting, isn't it? Some opposed the presence of God. The presence of God had never been experienced the way it was with Jesus. Christ's advent, his first coming to earth, had an effect on the earthly temple that would change it forever. Look at John chapter 2, verse 18, the next page. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And verse 21 says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Matthew 24. You don't have to turn there. We read it last week. You remember when his disciples came, and they're, they're on a walk. It, sa- it says, um, uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. I mean, they, they figured the, the coming king, the one we've anticipated, he's going to be like, he's going to be floored about the temple, right? I mean, he, if anyone's going to care about the temple, it's going to be a manual. God with us, Right? And so they're walking, and in this moment where they're walking, you can go through and study history and, and geography and everything, they were walking at a point where if they were leaving, they would have been kind of coming up a hill where they could look back and see sort of Jerusalem and its splendor and see all the buildings of the tabernacle. And so it's like you can see like one disciple going, oh, look, let's show this to Jesus. He might not know what's behind him. And so one of them's like, Jesus, you see that over there? Check out the tabernacle. You see the temple? You see it over there? Look at that. This is like a painting. The sun was probably setting behind it. There were probably birds flying. Look at the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? All these buildings of the temple? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Why would he say that? The temple's been so important for so long. It was preserved until the time of Jesus. Why would he say that? Not one stone's going to be left. This thing's going to be leveled. Here's what we see here. The temple was always meant to be a temporary thing. And it changed completely when Jesus came on the scene. He didn't He didn't care little about the temple. He spent most of his life teaching in the temple after he cleansed it. He went in and he spent a ton of his time teaching there. But things changed, and here's why. Jesus filled the previous temple with more glory than ever before. Much of his time on earth was spent teaching in the temple, but then he became the better temple. That's the beautiful Advent truth about Christ. He was a better dwelling place for God among his people. He was the better temple. The fulfillment of what the temple had been about for so many years. God took on flesh He tabernacled among us. Jesus Christ became God with us in a way that has never been experienced. And he provided purity to people in a way that could never be provided through the previous temple. The coming of Jesus was a massive event for these temple realities, the realities of God dwelling among his people. Jesus Christ became God with us in a way that had never been experienced. And just like before, there were many who opposed his presence, weren't there? If they, the reality is, 
if they tore down the temple, they're likely to try to tear down this Jesus. And they tried. Just like before, they opposed the presence of God and they crucified Emmanuel. They crucified God with us. They tried to get rid of the presence of God. But through that finished work, something happens to the temple, to the dwelling place of God. Christ conquers death, and it says in Acts that in doing that, it was necessary so that we would have the Spirit. And what happens next, what God accomplishes, and what temple reality changes is amazing. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3, and this will be the last place, or the next to the last place you have to turn. 1 Corinthians 3. See the importance of the temple in the time of Haggai. It makes more sense when Jesus shows up. And so you could see if I had a chart here, it would be like God's presence in the Old Testament, temple. God's presence during the time of Jesus, Jesus. God's presence now, blank. And we're going to fill in the blank by looking at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. This is in a chapter where Christians, like they so often do, are arguing about who's a better leader and who they're with and what team they're on, and they're being utterly ridiculous because there's divisions in the church. And to speak to those divisions, one of the apostles of Jesus, someone who was given the message and the ministry by Jesus personally, said this in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I want you to feel that. Think about Jesus looking at you. Consider your ways. The same way in the time of Haggai. He called these things out, and he's like, you're not viewing the temple rightly. God says to us, you are that temple? We are now God's temple. This is what Christ accomplished in the first advent. He purified you. He purified you so that you could dwell together in a way that's never been experienced on earth. You're the temple of God. You're the presence of God on earth. We're to represent God's presence to everybody else who doesn't understand it. We're to be like the people during the time of Haggai who consider their ways and get things in right order because we are representing the presence of God among people who aren't deserving, but he's redeemed anyway. To neglect to meet together, this is why we have such a high view of of being members of one another as a church. This is why we don't slough off the reality of what the church is, because to neglect to meet together, to remain apathetic and indifferent towards one another in both the joy and the heartaches of life is wrong. To think that you could make it through this world without the church is to disregard the presence of God. You see the the importance of what's going on here today? To neglect the church, to think, you know what, I'm a Christian, I can do it by myself, I can make it through without the help of others, to think that your spiritual gifts don't matter to others and that their gifts don't matter to you, to think that you can lone ranger this thing and get by it is utterly ridiculous and backwards. We're the presence of God. And who are we the presence of God toward? Consider who God calls us to as a church. We're the presence of God to the lost. We're the presence of God to the hurting. We're the presence of God to the widow. We're the presence of God to the orphan. We're the presence of God to the afflicted. And we're the presence of God to the sojourner, to name a few. And we're also the presence of God to one another. When that work gets utterly exhausting, he gives us one another. He fills each of you with his spirit so that you can do his work. And he gives you promises that go along with these commands. Our God is so good to us. To spend more time on being comfortable, (laughs) in light of that, to spend more time on being comfortable where God's placed you, rather than on one another and those that God has called us to minister to and to serve, 
is to be guilty of the same sins of Israel during the time of Haggai. So how do the commands and the promises apply to us today? The encouragement, just consider it. Be strong. Work. Fear not. You represent the presence of God in this world. Christ removing your sins, making you holy, cleansing you, removing your sins as far as the east is from the west, purifying you is like Christ turning over those tables and running the money changers out of the temple courts. It's not just so that you can get to God in the end, it's so that you can be the presence of God until the end. That has to be clear to the church. He doesn't purify you and make you holy and count his flawless work as yours just because he wants you to be comfortable till he gets back. It's so you can be the presence of God until he returns. There's others on earth. The only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because there are people on this earth or people who will be on this earth who are God's children and they don't know it yet. And you're supposed to tell them. You're supposed to share the gospel. You're to be the presence on earth. Of God. So be strong, work hard, and fear not. God's people were never intended to be weak and fearful. We were never intended to be weak and fearful people. We're called to be strong, we're called to be fearless, we're called to work hard. And we need the strength and we need the fearlessness because rest assured, many people, even nations, oppose the presence of God in this world, right? Our setting isn't all that different as it was at the time of Haggai. Christians struggle with wanting to be comfortable where they are because their comforts are being threatened. And they they love the comfort so much that we lose sight of the presence of God and being the presence of God, even among those who would threaten us. It's appropriate to take risk. It's appropriate to make sacrifice. The physical temple's been destroyed. The people of God have not and will not be. Spoiler alert, you're on the winning team. Keep at it. God's people have multiplied in number. We grow, we reach the treasure of the nations, and God says, it's all my treasure. It's because he will send each of you wherever he wants you to be. To be salty, to be bright, to be God's presence among people who don't know what that is. As the temple, God will require you to sacrifice things even if you've worked hard for them. If there's anything in your life you're like, you know what, I've worked too hard for this to let God have it, I would encourage you, just like it was in the time of people during Haggai, the best thing you could do would be to loosen your grip on that, to spend more time on the presence of God and being the temple with other people who are reaching more people. The content of your work will change when it's motivated by God's promises, by God's presence, and by God's peace. So here's the crazy part that should blow our minds this morning. God gives us commands, and he gives us promises, but that's not all. God's with us. You can consider all that he's done. God's with us. His Holy Spirit dwells within us. He gives us peace He'll even bring people to you who you need to be the presence of God to. We've got 300 Central American refugee orphan children moving into our backyard this week in Roy City. God will, I mean, you don't even have to go there. They're right there in our backyard. It's like, well, they're in our backyard. Uh, they're orphans and they're soldiers. Do we have any option but to do anything we can to help, to be the presence of God? But consider what God does. He's with us. His Holy Spirit dwells within us. He gives peace. He motivates our work. He counts the work of Christ as ours. And when we obey, He rewards us. Are you serious? He does all of that. And when you obey, He rewards you. I hope you are amazed by the scandal of the Advent, Christ coming to earth and changing everything regarding the, 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 the presence of God and making it as robust and as full as it's ever been. And I hope you feel that good burden of, man, we need to be the people of God. We need to represent God rightly. But I want you to see 
In doing that, you're still among the most blessed people to ever walk planet Earth. In Isaiah 58, God says, pour yourself out for the afflicted, and I will make your your darkness and gloom like the noonday. He says, you know what? When you do obey me, and you do like find people who are afflicted and need help, and you're my presence among them, I'm going to make you happy. I'm going to turn your depression into something different. I'm going to raise your spirits. He goes on to say, you, you have not because you ask not. Indicating that if we obey God and we stop and we go to him in prayer, we will actually have things that we didn't have before because of how good he is towards us. He does all the heavy lifting. You obey, he still rewards you. And not just that. It's not just little earthly better harvest things that we do appreciate. Eternally, he says, store up treasure in heaven. Do you believe you're doing that? Do you have the sense that you've been purified so that you can be the proper presence of God on earth? Do, are you working like saying, I hope the storing up treasures in heaven thing is true because that's what I'm working towards. Because that's who we're supposed to be. That's why we do things like what I mentioned earlier, spending and being spent gladly on God's children. He is so incredibly good to us. And the crazy part, is it doesn't stop there. It should. Like, it's getting overwhelming, right? We're, we're so stinking. We just had a Wednesday night, the night of recounting, where all we talked about was all the good stuff. I was supposed to stop at 8, and we had to go to like 8.30 because we're so blessed. We had to just keep going and keep talking about all this stuff God's doing. And here, we see this, these commands, we see these promises, and then we see these rewards, and then turn to Revelation 21. This will be what we consider for our supper this morning. Revelation 21. Remember at the, the end of those verses in Haggai, he says, and in this place I will bring peace. In this place I will bring peace. Revelation 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This passed away at this point. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, the new version of where the Israelites were during the time of Haggai, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, listen to what, what it said. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The reason we care about where God dwells right now is because it's what we're going to be about for all of eternity. If you don't care about God's presence, you are not a Christian. If you don't care about God's presence in your life and in the lives of those that you engage, you are not following Christ. Here we see that this is what, the reason we're about it now is because it's what we're going to be about eternally. This is what it means to have an eternal perspective, to have a continual awareness of God. Those things go together. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The temple was always meant to be temporary. Even your role in being the presence of God on this earth is temporary because this earth is temporary. But what's not temporary is the presence of God among his people eternally, being with them, being their God, dwelling among them. That's why we are so thankful for Christ making a way to God so that we can dwell with him eternally, that's the reward. That's the better reward than any harvest or any, any temporary thing we could have now. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. When he says there will be peace in this place, that's a promise that's supposed to motivate everyone now. And some of you really need to be motivated by this this morning. Some of us struggle with darkness, depression, fear of death, the, the pain and heartache of sickness, the frustration of getting older, the sniffles, 
Every manner of, uh, of thing that you could imagine, it can be a downer. And God says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you anticipate that kind of peace? You should. It's, it's the whole reason Christ came, to bring us back to God and have that kind of peace eternally. No crying, no pain, no heartache, no sadness. That is your eternal reality and why you have to have an eternal perspective now as those who are called to be the dwelling place of God among the people of earth. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, those who are not fearless, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We still see, even here, rewards for obedience and curses for disobedience. Look what it says in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Ain't no need for it anymore. I saw no temple in the city. I looked at Jerusalem and there was no temple. That would be weird for anyone who grew up in Jerusalem or knew the history of Jerusalem to look at Jerusalem and there be no temple. And he said, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The temple was never meant to finally take the place of God. You were never meant to finally take the place of God. It's all temporary. And because of Christ's finished work, we'll take the supper this morning, anticipating these eternal, eternal realities that should be reflected in the way that we live as the presence of God now. Temporarily. Could be tonight. Could be a thousand years from now. God's coming back. But we move and we take this supper in anticipation of these eternal realities. Y'all pray for me. Pray with me. You pray for me too. Lord, we're thankful. Um, we are thankful uh, for your message. We're thankful for dwelling with Adam and Eve. We're thankful that when they fell, because they were more focused on their comfort than on you, that you redeemed them that you covered them, you covered their sin, you covered their shame, you covered their guilt. We're thankful that you did that throughout the ages, during the time of Noah, for keeping he and his family and not wiping out the earth. During the time in Egypt, where God's people were, were pressed hard, and in time you brought them out. We're thankful for the tabernacle. We're thankful for the temple we're thankful for the reality today that Christ has redeemed us and restored us so that we can reflect him to others, so that we can be the presence of God on earth as the temple. Lord, as we take this supper, I pray that we would be considering our ways and that we wouldn't be sitting here in shame or in guilt, but that we would be considering how wonderfully redeemed we are in Christ and understand clearly why we've been made pure. We love you, Lord. We humble ourselves before you during this time. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we were passing out the supper, I realized we kind of covered a lot of ground this morning. In one sermon, we went from the, the garden to the marriage supper of the Lamb, somewhere from Genesis, beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And so it may be worth, um, I want to encourage you, it may be necessary for you to, you know, spend some time looking over the texts we talked about this morning. Spend some time reflecting on what Christ has done and why he's done it. Because it may not be the kind of thing that, oh, in one sitting, oh, that makes perfect sense. Now let's go be the temple. It, it, it takes time to work through those things. And so I want to encourage you to, to make that a priority. Um, this morning, as we talk about work, um, I hope, my hope this morning, it's always hard to talk about the work the church is supposed to do because there's always the possibility of leaving everyone feeling like a bunch of guilty and shameful losers who don't do enough. And my hope this morning is that you are so overwhelmed with the finished work of Christ, with what he accomplished with his body and his blood to transform and to purify a people to be the presence of God, that you'd be too busy marveling to feel a bunch of guilt and shame about not doing more. Remember during the time of Haggai, he wasn't telling them they needed to do more. He was talking to them about their priorities and where they were spending the time that they had. It wasn't about doing more, it was about doing what was right. And we have the opportunity to do that because of the finished work of Christ. So this, this bread and this juice is representative of his body and his blood, and he tells us to take it in remembrance of him. And in taking it in remembrance of his first coming, we anticipate that second coming where all this temporary stuff is, is gone away. And the presence of God with us on earth is what our eternal reality is. So God is very, very good to us, and we have great, great blessings in Christ. With that in mind, take and eat. Take and drink. We're going to take up the offering. And as Brad mentioned earlier this morning, if you want to go above and beyond tithe and give something to Lottie Moon's, the Lottie Moon offering, I want you all to remember that that offering, all of it is going to people who are being the presence of God in areas where it is far less than it is here, who are being the presence of God among people who don't know God's presence. And so um, please take that into consideration um, this morning and in the coming weeks. I'm going to pray and we're going to continue. Lord, we love you. We thank you. I pray that this offering and the songs that we sing are wholehearted from your people. We thank you for even giving us the opportunity to be partners with you in the work of the gospel because of the redemption of Christ. You are so good to us. We love you and praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.